Okay, so uh, again, this talk this evening, the theme is in some ways a continuation of the practices that we were exploring together back in June, July and August when we went on that pretty fast tour of the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And we looked at the some of the core teachings from that uh, sutta, which is really the main sutta that all of the insight practices, all of the Vipassana teachings come from. And so just to put that in a little bit more context, as many of you have heard, the Buddha's teachings are sometimes spoken in terms of the metaphor of the two wings of awakening. And these two wings are wisdom and compassion. And the idea with that metaphor is that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. And all of the different teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta all of the mindfulness teachings come under the wisdom wing. And the Brahma-Vihara practices of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity come under the compassion wing. So in this series so far, what we've mostly been focusing on have been the foundations of insight and now the deepening of insight from the wisdom wing. But tonight I'm going to be bringing in a little more of the flavor of the Brahma-Vihara practices to bring in some of the compassion, the heart practices, just again in the service of that balance. So whatever wing we're focusing on, whether it's wisdom or compassion, the purpose of both of the wings is the same. It's to change how we relate to life's inevitable challenges, difficulties, stress, distress, suffering. In other words, dukkha, to put it in Buddhist terms. So the Brahma-Vihara practices, you could think of in some ways as being like a salve or a balm or medicine that relieves the suffering once it has arisen. The wisdom practices of mindfulness and insight show us how to stop that suffering from coming up in the first place. So in some ways, the wisdom practices are really inviting us to go beneath the level of our personal pain, beneath our individual stories, our life conditioning, our psychological patterns and so on, to connect with the deeper truths the more universal truths of who we are and how life is. So the overall development of the practice then is from, the, from a more individual and self-focused orientation towards more and more understanding of the impersonal patterns that are playing out in each of our lives. And that opening to the universal actually brings with it feelings of more connectedness, more kindness, more care, more compassion, as we see these universal truths more clearly, more deeply. So that's just one example of how the wisdom wing of insight supports the deepening of the heart qualities of the Brahma-Viharas. 
it also works the other way around. So the Brahma-Vihara practices help cultivate a resilience of heart and mind, and that allows us to take in some of the more challenging aspects of the wisdom practice on deeper and deeper levels. So last week I spoke about how insight practice, the aim of it is to help us experience more and more directly the truth that everything is impermanent, imperfect and impersonal or anicca, dukkha, anatta to use the Pali terminology. And for some of you these terms might be relatively new, they might sound a bit abstract and it might not be immediately obvious how insight into these three helps us to live with more ease, happiness, peace, freedom. So tonight I'll talk about them more generally to begin with before we move into some meditation practice to explore them more directly. So last week we started exploring the first of the three universal characteristics, which is anicca, or impermanence. The understanding that everything changes. Perhaps quickly, perhaps slowly, but nothing lasts forever. And by pointing directly to this aspect of life, the Buddha is asking us to bring awareness to how do we relate to this truth. And often, when we do look at our relationship to change, we find some of the many ways we tend to resist it and instead cling to the illusion or the hope for stability, for steadiness, for permanence. But as I think you all know from your own experience, that resistance and clinging only amplifies our distress because we're trying to live out of alignment with the truth of how things are. So some of you might know the work of Byron Katie, who famously said, when I argue with reality, I lose, but only 100% of the time. And she went on to say, I'm a lover of what is, not because I'm a spiritual person, but because it hurts when I argue with reality. We can know that reality is good just as it is, because when we argue with it, we experience tension and frustration. We don't feel natural or balanced. When we stop opposing reality, action becomes simple, fluid, kind and fearless. So her words are perhaps a more contemporary way of expressing the essence of the Buddha's teachings in terms of the clinging and release that I spoke about last week. And I briefly mentioned these two movements in relation to impermanence. So one very common reaction to change is to try to hold on to what we want even more strongly and to resist its passing. And both these movements of clinging and resisting, of holding on and resisting, are aspects of clinging. And so in terms of our meditation practice, it's very helpful to be able to recognize the symptoms of clinging as soon as possible. So if we investigate carefully on the bodily level, Clinging shows up as 
a subtle or at times not so subtle tightening, contraction, bracing, stiffening, tension of varying kinds, varying degrees of intensity. Similarly, in the mind, clinging can be recognized as various forms of aversion, rejection, arguing, avoidance, ignoring, denying, shutting down, and so on. And the more quickly we can identify these symptoms of clinging, the easier it is to help them release, so that we can return to the flow of experience that I spoke of last week. So coming back to Byron Katie's quote, release is what happens when, as she says, we stop opposing reality and action becomes simple, fluid, kind and fearless. So this fluidity, this sense of flow, is the experience of release. And it's what all the Buddha's teachings are pointing to on deeper and deeper levels. Releasing all forms of resistance, reactivity, clinging and identification so that we can live with integrity and ease and balance. Now, just to say, release doesn't mean that we become immune to the basic stresses and stressors of life. It doesn't mean that we end up living happily ever after in some kind of fairy tale fantasy land where nothing unpleasant ever happens. There are still the basic existential difficulties of having a human body and of having to interact with others for our survival, having to navigate the basic realities of making a living in the world, supporting ourselves, supporting our families and finding meaning in the midst of it all. So experiencing the release of dukkha is not about escaping into some kind of transcendent bliss state. Even the Buddha, after his awakening, experienced all kinds of challenges. He had health difficulties, he had chronic back pain, he experienced injuries and illnesses. There was conflict in his sangha, in his community, and at one point that conflict got so intense that uh, no matter what he said, the warring uh, parties just ignored him. So he ended up just leaving them to it. And he went and lived in the forest by himself for quite a few months. Several times followers of different sects tried to frame him for different kinds of crimes and were constantly trying to discredit him. And his own cousin tried to kill him multiple times and almost almost succeeded at least once but through it all his mind retains some degree of composure because of the understanding of these three characteristics now obviously that's a pretty high bar the, and the buddha to be didn't start in that place he got to that capacity through training through this path of development that all of us here are likewise trying to follow. And at the heart of it, as I said, is understanding and transforming our relationship to dukkha. So dukkha itself is actually the second of these three universal characteristics. And it means unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection. 
And perhaps for some of you it's even harder to accept than the truth of impermanence. Because as a general rule in our society, we tend to be perfectionists. And many of us are conditioned to put enormous amounts of energy into trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make the conditions around us, even the people around us, be exactly the way we want them to be. And we often have this deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just get this to happen, or if I can just achieve that, or if I'll just, everything will be okay, and then I'll be happy. But in spite of all that effort, not many of us can say that we have experienced the lasting happiness that we keep hoping for. Which is not to deny that there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, constantly changing, incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So the Buddha even defined pleasant experience as dukkha because they're unreliable, unstable, impermanent. And maybe some of you have had that experience how even when things are going well, when life actually is pleasant and there might be some sustained happiness, underneath it or just in the background, there's that little underlying anxiety due to the knowledge that it's not going to last, it is going to change. And some of us even disconnect from that happiness in the first place as a kind of a preemptive measure to protect ourselves from the pain of its loss. So this word dukkha is usually translated into English as suffering, but it actually has a much wider range of meanings than the word suffering suggests. And in a moment, I'd like to read you a more nuanced definition of dukkha from uh, a Buddhist studies scholar from Harvard University by the name of Glenn Wallace. But before I give you that definition, first, I just want to acknowledge that if you're anything like me, based on my own experience of hearing possibly hundreds of talks on dukkha over the years, some of you might be experiencing some dukkha fatigue right now. So sometimes even hearing all this talk on dukkha can create a bit of resistance. So even right now you might like to notice if that's true for you. If there is some slight tightening in the body or some buzz of aversion in the mind. And if that's true, see if right there you can soften any little niggling, clinging, invite it to release. And again, come back to acceptance, to ease. So this is what Glenn Wallace has to say about the definition of dukkha. He says, a further nuance is added to the term dukkha when we keep in mind that in the Buddha's view, even a happy moment is tinged by dukkha. That is because neither the moment nor the experience is stable. Given this view, what should we call dukkha in our language? 
our English term would have to have the following colorings on an increasing scale of intensity. Faint unsettledness. Irritation. Impatience. Annoyance. Frustration. Disappointment. Dissatisfaction. Aggravation. Tension. Stress. Anxiety. Vexation. Pain. Desperation. Sorrow. Sadness. Suffering. Misery. Agony. Anguish. Of course, you may add to this list. There's virtually no end to it. It is obvious that each of these qualities involves some degree of unease. So unease is how I translate this term for general usage. So Glenn Wallace's definition of unease. I'm curious, did any of those words resonate with you as you heard them? And what reactions might you have noticed in your body as you start to attune to this quality of dukkha and any reactions in the mind? So just to hear from any of you, what did you notice as we start to connect more with this understanding of dukkha? What effect does it have on the body, the heart, the mind? Anybody like to share? Marisha, thank you. Ah, holding your breath, yeah. Yeah, just that physiological kind of bracing. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, great to see. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Mark. So... Yeah, tightening around the belly. And it really good training to be able to recognize that uh, subtle or not so subtle, the, the very early stages of it. Because in all of this, the quicker we can catch it, the easier it is to release. So yeah, great that you're seeing that. Thank you. Yeah, Nadine. Nadine disappeared. She's back. Yeah. I did. Yes, irritation. I think he did mention, mention sorrow. But I really appreciate you naming the energy of irritation. 
that in a perverse way it, it can sort of en enliven us. Yeah. Yeah, powerful to see that, how we can use the energy of aversion as, as fuel to kind of wake us up. Great to see these habits. Thank you. Yeah. And beautiful. Yeah, so relinquishment in terms of the parami is, uh, it was very powerful to understand it, not as giving up material things like giving up chocolate, but actually giving up mind states, giving up mental habits and personality patterns, which he describes really beautifully. Yeah, lovely, thank you. Any other? Deborah. Need to unmute. Yep. Yep. Yes, yes, that's perfect, you know, so this, what this is pointing to, you know, Dukkha, as you know, is also the first noble truth. And so hearing that list of all the different flavors of Dukkha and recognizing we're not alone, <laughs> this is part of the path to freedom. So that might be a good place to move on, actually, because you're jumping ahead to where I was going to go with all of this. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. So I wanted us to have some actual direct experience of dukkha, even if it was just a little hit, so that we can explore now some ways of helping that dukkha to release. Because that's really the point. This is not intended as an exercise in masochism or kind of sadism on my part. It's to help us understand how we get caught in clinging and how to let that release. So the first approach comes from the wisdom wing of the practice, and it's actually what we've been talking about all evening so far, understanding that dukkha is a universal characteristic. As Deborah was just highlighting, it's a natural part of being human. No one is exempt from it, not even the Buddha in terms of basic suffering. But this understanding goes against the grain of some pretty strong conditioning. Often, when we're in pain, we tend to take it personally and to associate it with failure of some kind. There's a tendency to think our distress is due to our own unique shortcomings and everybody else has got it together. 
So sometimes, as I said earlier, just that acknowledgement in the first noble truth that there is dukkha can help soften that identification with our pain. We can also bring in the understanding of, of the other two universal characteristics too and remind ourselves that dukkha is impermanent. Even just saying to ourselves, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, can help cut through that tendency to collapse into the pain and to unconsciously believe this is how it's always been and how it always will be. Have you noticed that in relation even to physical pain? We just start to feel like that's going to be how it is forever. So wisdom reminds us to simply acknowledge, yes, this is dukkha and it will eventually pass because like everything else, it's impermanent. Also, like everything else, it's impersonal. And this is an aspect of the third universal characteristic of anatta, or not-self. And in this context, it's the recognition that not everything is under my control. So here, wisdom helps us to remember that this pain is arising due to impersonal causes and conditions. It's not me it's not mine, it's not who I am. So we step out of that very common tendency to identify with our suffering, to take it personally, and at times to collapse our whole identity into it. So depending on the intensity of the dukkha, we can experiment with bringing the wisdom wing to bear on it. And to see if just remembering these three characteristics can help reduce the intensity of it. There are times, though, I think for all of us, when the dukkha, the circumstances, painful circumstances are so strong and the dukkha gets such a hold on us that it feels to knock out our capacity to apply wisdom. And it can seem as if part of our minds has just gone offline in some way. Which actually may be true, particularly if the dukkha is in the terrain of some kind of trauma response. And so we, we can't always access the wisdom that's needed. And this is where we might need to turn to the compassion wing of the two wings, to orient directly to compassion itself, and particularly in the form of self-compassion to help soothe the emotional distress and bring the heart and mind back to balance. And this balance is an aspect of equanimity, the fourth of the four Brahma-Vihara. So sometimes if compassion doesn't feel available to us, we can experiment with orienting to the spaciousness, the steadiness and the acceptance of equanimity instead perhaps by visualizing space around the tightness of the dukkha or feeling the connection of the body with the ground, perhaps borrowing that steadiness from the earth beneath us or opening to the vastness of the sky above. So there are many different creative ways that we can orient to compassion and to equanimity. 
But again, this is not a quick fix. It's a training. And that's one of the reasons I put so much emphasis on developing the Brahma-Vihara practices in daily life. So that when we do find ourselves in some kind of challenging situation, we're not having to start from scratch under adverse conditions to try and bring in these skillful heart qualities. So in summary then, when we find ourselves caught in some kind of dukkha, we can use the wisdom wing to try and see it more clearly, to see that it's impermanent and impersonal and help release the identification with it. And then we can also use the compassion wing to soothe the distress that the dukkha is causing. And that can help us open up to equanimity, release the reactivity and reorient to ease and peace. So I'd like to experiment with that process in a couple of minutes in the form of a shortish guided meditation. But first, let's just take a moment to, of silence to let the words dissolve before we transition into the sitting. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.